Welcome to the Window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor for The Post and Courier. Well, this week's episode is going to be the Tough Critics episode because we're going to talk about, uh, you know, drawing some lines and expressing tough opinions in the in the restaurant business. We're going to talk about restaurant genres and perhaps expanding or blending the lines between genres and why people get so... Uh, so picky when it comes to things like that. We're also going to talk about restaurant reviews, but actually the the flip side of the restaurant review, which is the review of the review that invariably will come or, or often will come from the owner of a, of a restaurant or someone who works at the restaurant. We'll talk about those and sort of what what's the right and wrong way to, to respond to review. And finally, this is what I'm looking forward to because I know virtually nothing about it, but Hannah uh, recently has learned an awful lot about it, and that's food in prison. Now, I don't think she was locked up uh, per se. I don't Not think she – oh, That's good. But has actually sampled some fine prison food and learned a lot more about it than 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 I ever thought possible. And we're going to talk talk about that. But first, we do like to get started with a little something to eat. And what you have here is smelling good. What is it, Hannah? So I brought in um, both a bowl and a burrito from Poke Tea House, which is Charleston's first dedicated poke restaurant. Poke has been the food of 2016 uh, up and down the East Coast, and I assume the West as well. Just to, to clarify, uh, poke is a Hawaiian uh, tradition. It is basically, it's like really basic food. You would get it... Um, at a fish market, you get it, you know, after you've gone surfing. It's basically like you get a couple pieces of fresh fish with some rice. Um, it, you know, tuna is the most most typical. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's good island eating. It's caught on in a big way because I assume it has a lot of health connotations. Again, we're talking about largely unvarnished fish. We're talking about, in many cases, in its, you know, newfangled form, uh, get brown rice or other kind of multi-grain grain. Um, so Poke Tea House, again, is our first poke purveyor. It, it's really interesting. So what they've done is they have, it, it's a totally customized, customizable uh, experience. So they're serving the bowls, the salads, and the burritos. And, and at this point now, I've gone so far from what poke really is. I just want to be very clear that um, this is as much poke as, you know, the cream cheese avocado roll yep. kind so of thing. So this is poke coming to the mainland. And- it, this is just people want to give a funny name to a lot of Asian ingredients. I, I just, I'd be very hesitant to to, to call this poke. Um, you, you could make a lot of Hawaiians really angry. But the idea is, as I said, it's customizable. So I'm looking at the menu here. It is lengthy. The idea is you pick one protein out of seven. You pick three toppings out of 11. Uh, yeah, these kind of restaurants, there's a lot of these restaurants these days, particularly not so much around Charleston, like in D- Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, where you get, you get in line, and it's always a line, and there's like, pick 82 of these things, and then pick nine of these things. And I, it, it's almost stressful, because it's like, I don't even really know... What a, there's too much to choose from. It's definitely the, the tyranny of choice when it comes to long list of ingredients. But I will say, looking at the plate, I think you did a pretty good job. <laughs> you must you. not have been rushed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So so what we ended up with here was a, a bowl with ahi tuna and a, a burrito with scallops uh, as well as crab salad. I mean, the ingredients are pretty fresh. It, to me, it, it tastes pretty good. I'm not calling it poke, but I'm yeah, not sad the, to have Yeah, and the burrito, it's it's not in a tortilla. It's in the nori. Seaweed, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, seaweed, like you would get sushi wrapped in, and it looks like sushi rice inside of it. So it's sort of like a big, giant it's <laughs> a like sushi roll. It's like the biggest roll. sushi roll ever. Wow, I haven't tried it yet. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. 
So it is. It's it's so poke or not poke, and I should say that the owners of this shop have nothing to do with Hawaii. Uh, they just caught on to it as, as a trend as well. The woman is of Chinese ancestry. Her partner is not minority Hawaiian. I'm blanking on 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 how he identifies. That alone establishes it as a pretty American place. Um, but the fact too that. Everything's huge, and you can get it just the way you want it. I, I, I'd say it's a contender for our most American restaurant. Yeah, in town this right is now. this is highly American in, yeah. in the sense of a a true melting pot. It really is like a sushi burrito, <laughs> and it's it's and though I say that it, it's good. It's, <laughs> it, it has definitely a big hit of, of heat to it. I was seeing there's jalapeno or something up in there. I, I did add jalapeno. That was up to me. Uh, so I I, I did put good. that in there. Various sauces. I mean. I don't know. It, it, it seems like you could go right, you could go wrong on this. There's so many different things. Um, but it definitely has that smack of what we now associate with healthy food. So yeah. you do feel like you're getting kind of surge of energy. It does definitely feel healthy. I don't know if it really is or not. It's probably 8,000 zillion calories. But Absolutely. It's okay. Yeah. Um, and then the salad, this looks like it's sort of like sushi-style short-grain rice with uh, the, the little cubes of, of tuna. And I would guess, what else we got in oh, here? Oh, bowl? Okay, little so pineapples bowl. and a lot of little red roe. Okay, that's mango. And, yeah, and so we do have the um, tobiko mm-hmm. and the masago both. It's cool stuff. I mean, it, I mean, other things we could have added to this. There's, you know, wasabi and ginger, and I, don't, I, I, I like it. Yeah, definitely. I agree this is sort of fresh and beats the heck out of, like, a you know, deep-fried everything. So this we just called this American food because it's definitely uh, lots of different things rolled together, uh, which which I think brings up the subject of, of restaurant genres because then you can really call this a poke restaurant. What kind of restaurant is it? It sort of defies uh, defies genre in, in some ways, or it's a, it's a it's a whole bunch of genres rolled together. Right. I mean, I think that's the genre of um, it's the DIY genre, right? I mean, in many ways, this has more in common with a, a yogurt shop or you know frozen yogurt store. Um, than it does with a, well, I would think, with a traditional Asian restaurant, so to speak. I think it's it's a fine something that's going on right now. Last last week we were talking about Top Chef, and uh, we we talked about grits being rolled together with miso and and kimchi and all these things. And I really do feel like that isn't in many ways contemporary American cooking or cooking right now um, here in the South, but throughout the country, which is long lists of. In- ingredients and options and flavors from around the world that you can then select from and roll together in in any number of ways. Certainly our palette of ingredients has expanded remarkably just in, in the last 10 years. And then that brings you to this this question of, well, it used to be, let's go get a, it's an Italian restaurant, it's a Chinese restaurant, it's a Japanese restaurant. It's, uh, you know, even if you got to something like a tapas restaurant or a sushi restaurant, they were in a very well-defined genre. You sort of knew what to expect when you get there. Where are we now? Do you have any any ideas of are new genres emerging, or is everything just getting rolled together into a so anything is, can happen kind of a world? Right. I, I, this is interesting. So it comes up a lot for me. I, I think I was saying to Robert um, because I am often used the time walking from the newsroom to a restaurant. I, I I'm reviewing I, while I'm walking. I'll, I'll call my mother, and and the last question before I get off the phone is, I was, "Oh, what kind of restaurant are you going to?" And you know, if it's not something that is just really trying to be authentic. And we've talked about that before, but trying to, you know, pay allegiance to a certain country or its culture. If I can't say I'm going to a Mexican restaurant or an Italian restaurant or a sushi restaurant, I I feel like I'm just a C um, because we have lots of restaurants that don't fit that. But I don't know what word to use to distinguish something like here in Charleston from, you know, an Edmonds Oast from a Hominy Grill. 
And that's is the problem. Someone will say, what kind of restaurant is that? Well, it's sort of, um, and then you just, you, you know, stretch for adjectives for, for a while to de- try to describe some of these places because a lot of them have, you know, here in Charleston at least has that sort of local aesthetic of using fresh local fish and local ingredients uh, of various sorts. Often it will throw in little southern twists like Carolina gold rice and, or, you know, sort of these distinctive uh, ingredients. But then they'll have all sorts of, you know, the flavors of, of the, you know, of, of Asia in all sorts of varieties, all these wonderful herbs and, and, and things. And so is that a contemporary Southern restaurant? We used to just call everything fusion. Mm-hmm. At, at one point, I was really down on fusion because it usually meant just somebody, you know, cooking the same old bistro food, but throwing in a few basil leaves or something and calling it a day. Uh, but now it's, it truly is a fusion of, of a lot of different varieties all over. Right. It isn't. I mean, so the problem is, I think that everyone's using the same ingredients, not that they're using so many different ones. Right. So exactly as you say, uh, you know, something that you previously would associate with a certain kind of restaurant, they've all kind of migrated together and we do have kind of this this accumulation. So that that's not very defining. And so it almost feels like the food itself is less defining than maybe the philosophy of the chef and owner. Um, I feel like you you can probably indicate more about a restaurant by telling someone like, in the old question, who goes there? You know, like who 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 is their clientele? What is their style? Like it, the way that they talk about modern art being it, it's modern so long as it's experimental, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it doesn't really matter if it's a sculpture or it's a it's a painting. It, it has to do more with the kind of the outlook. I think so. It'd be interesting to look back because certainly when you look back at food trends in the past, you can really see them a lot more clearly than you can when you're right in the middle of them. I have a feeling that a lot of these things will just be looked at as the, well, that was the flavor of the of the year, the flavor of the month kind of kind of thing that that won't last. It'll be oh, that's so you know, 2016. No, I think you're, and I think maybe, maybe we're hung up on distinctions because we are part of it. I mean, it's just the same way that like when you look in the mirror, you know, like you see little yep. things, you know, that no one else would ever <laughs> notice. So, so I think you're right. Maybe in 10 years where we'll say like, oh, that was, you know, ingredient focused Southern restaurants. And it's not going to matter that there was a tiny sliver of difference between Edmund Zost and, and how many grill, because who cares? And yeah, do you, it's all the same. When you're for post and career, I can't remember. Do you guys have to label your restaurants with a category? We used to have to do it when I was doing we, that, uh, that's reviews how, of the city paper. So that's actually interesting you asked that. That's how it was done before I got here. And one of the changes I made was they did away with <laughs> You threw the, in the towel. <laughs> <laughs> forget that. I can't do that. So we did away with listing and I'm speaking specifically of the like the info box that yep. runs with a review. Did away with genre and instead um, have representative dish. Because that to me is more telling. Like this is the dish that I feel sums up probably the philosophy and the ingredients and the technique. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Now, as you said that, it made me think because as I was on the way down here to the Post and Courier today, a friend from Columbia texted me. He's coming down and said, "Hey, I want to. You know, give, where should I go eat? You know, give me a, rec- a re- restaurant recommendation." So I emailed or texted him back. Well, it depends what what kind of style and, and what are you looking for. And he came back something that's mi- sort of mid range. Oh, so it's just that that it was like, Robert. well, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's like. That doesn't narrow it down any, but but really, you know, no one says anymore. I, what kind of style? Oh, a steakhouse or a Japanese. It's more like just how much money you want to spend. Right, I huh? don't. I, I, I'm assuming by mid range, he wants to spend about twenty to thirty bucks. You know, he doesn't want to spend a hundred for the meal. He probably you know, actually probably you know fifty with tip tax and drink and all that kind of stuff. That's sort of mid range, and that can get you all sorts of things. So right. I gave him like a list of great places on King Street. You know, ones that 
you could call it Italian, but it's not really Italian. They have great yeah. pasta, but they have a bunch of other things. Right. And so, yeah, the genre is dead. Uh, no, it is. It's interesting that language is, is our language in this is so limited that t- typically when someone asks me for a recommendation, this has happened this morning, um, friend of a friend coming to town, say, okay, where should I eat? Which is a you know question we both get. The thing that I ask is not what kind of restaurant, but tell me what your favorite restaurant is. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah, that I find more useful because we just don't have the right adjective. So if they can say, I mean, this is someone coming from New York, you know, if they say, oh, I love Mineta Tavern, I mean, that's going to tell me more, you know, again, something like Little Jack's than Oak Steakhouse, yep. right? So um, so I find that helpful. But I feel like everyone is so, they're drawn to genre for sure. They're interesting here in Charleston, the owners of Zabao Biscuit are mm-hmm. opening a new restaurant. And, I didn't. I haven't heard much about this. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Have they you got, got the inside scoop? They or? just got their. Uh, they just got their permits recently, so they're just starting to build on Meeting Street. It's it's going to be interesting. And I had first covered it when they went to their first bar hearing, and so spoke mm-hmm. to them briefly about what they had in mind. And I didn't ask, and they didn't reveal. And somehow, though, it had never occurred to me that this would be an Asian restaurant. Yet, City Paper just recently wrote as a in breaking news: it's not going to be an Asian restaurant. And I just found that really interesting because I feel like, you know, there is this desire to pigeonhole. Yeah. But, but if you were to ask me what's the representative dish at Zaobao, I mean, it's probably become the Okonomiyaki. And if you take that as it, we're talking about John, we're talking about that. It's like, OK, like clearly they want to like fool around with traditions. We know that. I clearly I mean, there's nothing about that dish that to me says they will only cook Asian and Asians all they'll ever do. And, and do we know, did they have a genre that they could peg on it or did they? Say- so it's actually, no, I'm not. I Listen, we know that when we're taping it, they're about to have their third noodle night with Jacques mm-hmm. Larson. They, they're attracted to that. We know that they're tired of not being able to use dairy for the last three years. <laughs> um, it, it turns out that 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 Joshua, Joshua uh, Walker, the chef, really likes butter. Um, listen, I don't know. We, we've had kind of a, a French year this year. It's funny. It was preceded, as you've written about, all of these French restaurant openings. A lot yeah, of them did that, last. We had the... Uh... The French flurry a couple of years ago. We and did, yeah, and so we have we have very very few of those made it. Made I think it. only one has only made one it, which made is it. Annie's, which uh, since I, it's near me up in Mount Pleasant, and yeah. uh, Annie's Bistro, a delightful French restaurant. I was just went to lunch there with my wife a couple week ago so ago. Yeah, love it. Most of the rest the rest of them didn't make it, but yeah, you know, I did a piece on them. All the restaurant owners didn't know any of the others were opening French restaurants. They all looked at Charles and said, "What this town needs is a good French restaurant." It was a really <laughs> funny thing, and so. It, Although they didn't survive, I mean, this past year, we have seen plenty of throwbacks to kind of classical cooking. I yeah. mean, you don't open a restaurant now without steak tartare, and that's true not just in Charleston, but 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 everywhere. Everyone now needs to roast a chicken, you know? And so so I don't know what kind of restaurant they're opening on Meeting Street, but I think, you know, the ideas about about dairy and technique, and, and I think they mentioned romance. I, I think that'll all be part of it. So a, a dairy technique romance <laughs> is the new genre. Um, so I think we're it. just going to strain together adjectives, and, and that's, that's how we describe it. But I do like that idea of sort of centering around comparing it to other restaurants of a, a genre or it's sort of in this price range. I think we'll just have a whole new language of describing restaurants in, in the future as the influences get broader and broader and more diverse. One of the interesting problems with this, uh, you, you kind of started to touch on with the uh, way that you review stuff for our paper, but there's a technical function to categorizing stuff. And so I, I just looked up Obstinate Daughter on mm-hmm. Apple Maps. It is listed as a seafood restaurant. In Google Maps, it is listed as a, an eclectic restaurant. That's, huh. that's pretty That's pretty vague. Eclectic. E- eclectic. On, eclectic is a <laughs> new fusion. That's worse than fusion. <laughs> no, it's even worse. On Open Table, it is listed as a European restaurant. 
Um, and Apple Maps and Yelp are the same. So on Yelp, it would also be categorized as a seafood restaurant. But like so many people use these apps to discover restaurants, calling it a seafood restaurant, that's <laughs> like that gives you a totally misleading. That's true because you can right, if you ever been the daughter, which has just you know, it's it's really chefy, and, and I say that in the best way, delicious food, very flavorful, very diverse. You know, a lot of influences. It's not your deep fried, you know, fish and shrimp and oyster platter that you might get at other seafood restaurants. Seafood really doesn't describe it any more than saying this is a poultry restaurant or a. a I mean, I'm, I'm so glad you picked up the absinthe. I think that's such a great yeah. example, and that is that's really is fascinating about the consequences of the words we choose, which which we should be aware of anyhow. But I mean, Robert, what would you call absinthe daughter? You're going with chefy. Well, no, I, I can't say it's a chefy restaurant because that didn't help at all. But that's more the, the eclectic. eclectic, eclectic. But it has that sort of chef-driven cuisine, by which I mean, you know, it's it's cooked by you know, somebody with with real focus on training in the classics, focus on fresh ingredients. Uh, I, I, you know. But I feel like at this point, if someone hadn't been to the Absinthe Donner, you'd say yeah, everything not you just said. It's not not only is it not going to help them. I think they'd be really surprised at this point to learn half of their menu is pizza. That's true. I, I got, <laughs> when, and I have to admit, I, I never get the pizza there, not because I have anything against the pizza, just because everything else is so interesting and, and tempting that I usually go for that first. Right. I think Chefy is hard because, of course, I mean, yes, there is a big difference between those restaurants that have a chef and those do not. So maybe that's sort of like a, a sub category or, or subspecies here but you know when you start to describe what's a chefy restaurant i would think of something maybe more like sparrow on meeting street where yeah. you're really at the the you know whatever the chef decides is kind of you know what's going to happen to you that day <laughs> that's not the case at Absinthe daughter so that's fascinating there must be too though the from the restaurant's perspective that must be something you've got to think about because right on yelp you've only got a name star and then category yeah and you'll, you'll get grouped in together if you're a seafood restaurant you're gonna be there next to a lot of different things including hymen's including you know captain t's bowen's island all of which are completely different places and nothing nothing like each other but they, they do all sort of have a lot of seafood on the menu you know? maybe the thing to do is is to just rate restaurants by like I think you're onto something if you're mid-range price maybe we just need to do money and calories is really what you're saying <laughs> like you know you don't want I don't want 2,000 calories means I don't want hymens or any fried seafood you know I mean I, I feel like maybe it does I mean maybe this in our data age because it does come down to okay how many decibels how many calories yes. how many dollars <laughs> and somewhere in there is that sweet spot there's got to be some big algorithm where you add all those things together how many seats I mean these are things that yep. people care about right how many seats how many days um, a year does the chef spend in that restaurant I feel like you could come up with all these numbers and be like yeah I'm a 196 and then you're like <laughs> yeah I got the restaurant for you okay so I'll be going home working on my algorithm <laughs> I have a couple whiteboards in my office there we'll we'll see if I can flesh something out here we'll have a new taxonomy of restaurants all mapped out for next week Okay, so uh, Hannah, you were mentioning uh, the the box. What do you call it? The box at the side of the restaurant review. The info box. The info box, and and the categories and all that. So if you're a restaurant owner, you and you know figuring out what you, what you want to call yourself is a big deal. What if you're not pleased with whatever the local critic decides to slap in the inf info box, or even worse, what they write in the, the all the text on there? I think you know, you and I both have written more than our fair share of restaurant reviews, and probably had. Uh, some really interesting, nice responses and some other ones that we really weren't too uh, happy or even a little scared to receive in response. So I think that we want to talk a little bit about it. Responses to restaurant reviews. What's the way to do it and what's the way not to do it? So I, I was reminded of this recently because I wrote a review of uh, Sermet Southern Terranian, which is um, a new restaurant from Sermet Oslin. This one located on James Island um, in the old Heartwood Fire oh, yeah. space. 
I liked it fine. I didn't love it, and I definitely called out some things about it that I didn't like. Afterwards, Sir Matt, who I don't know, we've, I believe we've spoken on the phone, but perhaps we've only emailed. I don't know. The owner wrote to thank me for the review. Very, very short and sweet. I mean, maybe two sentences. Thank you. I've already started to change the menu. Not, not like I think meaning he was aware of these things. Not that he had read it five minutes earlier and was like, throw out the oh, yeah. menu. You know, it wasn't like that. Yeah, I never believe that one review can uh, totally change somebody's mind on the food. Absolutely not. And so this is why I was I got curious about the way people respond to reviews because, as you say, I think we we've seen the gamut, and I, I'd, I'd like to hear some of your stories because my my takeaway thus far is that what. Their response almost always is reflects the restaurant itself. I mean, what I had written about in the review was that it just seems so professional and so calm. This is someone with so many years of experience in the restaurant industry. And and boy, was that response exactly the same way. Have you had you know memorable responses? Well, I've not had too many. Uh, well, definitely some memorable ones. I've not had any ones that I think are, are particularly you know great. Uh, I've had some some that were. Um, where I wrote things I thought I didn't particularly care for the restaurant or I had mixed experience and I wrote things I thought were pretty, you know, critical, but then still got a, oh, thanks so much for the mention in the city paper. Really appreciate you coming out. You know, just not even mentioning the, the comments, which I think is good, you know, in, in, in a way, but it doesn't, it doesn't address it. I've had others, you know, the, the worst ones I had were the ones where people were really personally insulted by, by, by the, the you know, opinions and then accused you know we i think the, the some of the silliest was accusing it's not just me it's some other uh, i've seen other reviewers would say thing that we, we are we're in the pocket of some group of or restaurateurs mm. here in town or something like that you know particularly ones that uh, accuse the advertisers of they're just you're in the pocket of whoever's advertising for the the paper and all that which is um at least in my case is completely ridiculous because i don't i have you know being a freelancer never even attending i have no idea who's selling ads and i, I don't even read and see that see the ads so there's, and I can honestly say there's never been a connection between editorial and, and advertising and, and, and the, the ones I've done. So that just strikes me as being not just being sort of naive and, and hurt, and not you know lashing out, and not trying to respond to it in the way that you you would if you're. How often a do you think you hear from the restaurant after writing a review? Uh, seldom. I, I'd say a small percentage of it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, and that's that's true for me too. I would say maybe once, twice a year, probably. Yeah. I, I would hear. So it, you don't hear often, but again, it's it's always curious to me because this experience I had recently with Sermet, which I was very impressed by, followed a, a experience a few weeks prior where the restaurant was extremely unhappy um, with what I had written and floated the idea of creating a menu item named after me, <laughs> which was specifically going to be this terrible dish that suffered from all the flaws that I had pointed out. And they didn't do it. And I, 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 I mean, that's up to them if they want to or they don't want to. But it's, it, it, it seems to me a short-sighted response. I, mean, yeah. I can't imagine that many customers it would mean anything to. Yeah, that's sort of highlight the fact. <laughs> oh, oh, why, did, why is this on here? Well, we got a really bad review. It's not <laughs> right. necessarily something you, you, you really want to highlight. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, it's better just to, you know, ignore those and focus on the positive ones or, you know, read it and take it for what it, you know, what, what you can out of it. I, I fully understand. And that's what the hardest thing and, and the thing I don't like about writing restaurant reviews is, you know, it's something, it's somebody's livelihood. It's something they've poured a lot of time and effort into. It's something that, you know, means a lot to their business and, and all that. Not that my reviews necessarily are swaying the great mass of the public, but, you know, every, every little bit matters. Um, and so you, you, if you're going to be critical, you got to be, you want to be really fair about it and not, not to do it out of, out of fun and jest because it is someone's business that, that really affects it. But I think you know, the flip side is as long as we're not being, you know, snarky and un unfairly critical, 
then the flip side would be, well, okay, let's let's look at it. Is, is, is there some, something constructive we can take out of it? And I've certainly had some interesting responses to reviews where it's typically if, if it's just one person saying it, one reviewer saying it, but if there's multiple reviewers have a similar feedback, I've gotten some notes saying, you know, we take it seriously, we're making some adjustments, you know, but, you know, this, this type of thing. Um, it's interesting you say that about the making adjustments. And it, it, I did get a once response locally from a restaurant owner who was thrilled with the restaurant review because I had called out the chef for the very same things he had been complaining about. Help me solve a little yeah, personnel exactly, issue. Exactly, exactly. In, yep. in, in the kitchen. Yep. And, and that's the thing, you know, that, that's tough about restaurants. And, and you know, I, 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 I sort of see it from both ends because at the same time I, I write books and those books get reviewed and you know you put a lot of time years of work into a book and you you know you do the best you can there's always a crunch at the end where you you know you always could do it a little bit better and then the good reviews are great and then there's ones even lukewarm reviews even ones that are largely positive but then there's that one thing it's like oh that really hurts you know it really gets you in the gut so I can slowly sort 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 of see it but it's, at the same time you know the difference between a book and a restaurant is you can adjust a restaurant it's sort of hard to adjust a book once it's published <laughs> out in the world. Oh, right. Or no, on the boy, flip side to. that you get to, the book is exactly how you want it. And that is very rarely the case for a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, as a chef or an owner, you can't control. I won't say the book's so. exactly how okay. I want it, but, but the book never changes and you have many passes to get it right. And then you finally launch it, you know, you know, sometimes you have to abandon it and get it out there. But it's not like each night where, you know, you're depending upon 18 different people to do everything right. And, and everything, you know, the, the delivery doesn't come on time or you got a really bad table over here that really slows down the kitchen. And if somebody calls in sick, you know, the, those things don't happen with books. No, absolutely not. But I, I, I do want to reiterate what you said, which is one that so far as I know, any any responsible critic is not in any way, you know, swayed by advertising or we're aware of it. I have no idea who advertises in our paper. Yeah, I was actually being surprised surprised um, about how even as the money in journalism has gone down, 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 the, the revenues have gone down, I, I've not seen that wall between editorial and and, and advertising uh, breached at all, at least no. for, the, for the publications I'm writing for, which is like, this is encouraging. I, I find that people who aren't in journalism are often surprised by how just, you know, tall and long that wall is, yeah. you know, because oftentimes I'll get questions like, oh, who's does this in your ad department? I don't know. No, I, don't know I, I really don't that. know anybody in the ad department. So I want to reiterate that. I reiterate too how seriously we, we take these reviews that we write that we realize a lot, a lot, you know, rides on them and you take it really seriously. And so for me personally, and I and I think you you take this tack too. I do feel like just being honest and transparent in the review is is often the best the best. Yeah, tack. and I also I mean there's, there's two pieces to it because on the one hand, if I'm writing something negative, I always try to think okay about the person who's going to read this, who's at the restaurant, either you know, owns a restaurant or working there, and yeah, you know, I want to be I don't want them to read it and get offended and or, or, or hurt. At the same time, though, when I try to you know, if you want to pull your punches, then you got to think about the reader who's going to read this and and then may say, oh, this sounds like a pretty good restaurant and go there. Exactly. Um, yeah, especially guys- a town like Charleston, there's so many wonderful restaurants out there. To me, I always look at, you know, I don't get to go out to eat every night, but you don't want to waste a night out on a disappointing restaurant. And if I've gone on a review and I get there and, and halfway through, I'm like, boy, I really wish I'd gone somewhere else. You got to say that in the, in the review, or at least come back and then verify it, and then say that in the right review. because people have a choice of restaurants. So even though you're reviewing one restaurant, in some senses you're reviewing all of them because you are saying talking about it in context. And so if you mislead a reader to think you should go here, you're doing a disservice to the livelihoods, which is everyone's concern, of every other restaurant yep. tour who really deserves that visit. So, so yeah, so I get that. But so as I said, you know, just 
for me, honesty has helped. And I was really surprised talking about reactions to reviews. A restaurant chef came up to me at some event and I never seen him or known him <laughs> or anything, but I had reviewed his restaurant. And he said, thank you for, for the review. He said, now, can you tell me what you really thought of it? I thought, well, I just did. Like, I, there's there's nothing, you know, that yeah. I would write. I, I, I had nothing else to say. You know, it's. Yeah, I leave some things out of reviews guess, at, yeah. at times but, uh, because things that I think aren't necessarily relevant. I've been at a, uh, a restaurant reviewing it once when the uh, patron in the restaurant had a medical emergency. They had to wheel an amb- uh, a stretcher through and take the person <laughs> out on a stretcher. Um, it disrupted the meal a little bit, to say, the, to say the least. But that had nothing to do with the bear in the restaurant, so that did not make it. You know, no. We didn't even mention it in, in, in the restaurant and or I in the review I because, s- because that's, you know, and other little things that where something goes wrong. Okay, that happens. Somebody screwed up and again. It's no big deal, All especially if, if right. it gets quickly fixed and remember they it's not even worth mentioning not at all and i guess i I was so surprised by the chef saying that because it was like an okay review had it been a negative review that actually is true there are lots of times where i i tell people when you read a negative review at least for me the real experience was probably even worse um because you just need to make the point that this isn't the best restaurant you don't need to like pile on on top of that yeah definitely um, there's only so many ways i mean it, it's fun to pile on and try to come up with, with inventive ways to to insult things but really if, if it's a mediocre you know lamb shank that just is boring well that's all you can really say <laughs> yeah, move on I, yeah as long as you've made the point that like this is not the best choice that's all you need to say so you're right there there is more to be said had it been a chef to whom i given no stars who i which i don't think i've ever done <laughs> but yeah we might have sat down and had a conversation yeah. but Hannah, didn't you have a big role in in the food critics or food journalists associations, like ethics? Perhaps? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, are are there are there any ethical considerations when you're talking to restaurant owners after you've written a review? Do you think? Uh, you know, I, I, we do not cover that specifically in the. And Emery's referring to the the ethics code from the Association of Food Journalists, um, which nobody's obliged to follow, but we do put it out as as guidelines. Um, we don't specifically talk about relationships with restaurant tours or restaurant chefs, other than, of course, not to fraternize with anyone involved in the industry. But in terms of response, it just happens so infrequently. As I said, it's only about once or twice a year I hear from these people. So, no, we haven't issued any sort of ethical guidelines on it. Well, speaking of tough critics, <laughs> uh, it's probably a one place where you'll find a lot of tough critics is in the dining halls in a prison. I can only imagine the... Yeah, the cooks there get probably a little bit harsher feedback than you might get just from the the, the local paper. Um, but Anna, I know you recently went inside the world of prison dining. I'm not sure I'd say prison fine dining, but I'd uh, love to hear about what you found. I know you've got a big piece of that uh, yeah, coming out just any day now. Yeah, the paper this week. So I would start started to get interested in food service for inmates because during September there was a nationwide prison strike that – South Carolina didn't play a huge role in as opposed to somewhere like Alabama, where both the guards and the inmates uh, kind of got together on this movement. South Carolina was was a little bit less involved. Um, But one of the things to emerge from South Carolina was a picture of maggot infested cornmeal that an inmate had taken on a contraband cell phone. That was circulated and went somewhat viral. And if there was any sort of public awareness of this strike, it, it it didn't get, like, I think, the kind of coverage they wanted. But if there was any awareness, a lot of it had to do with maggot-infested cornmeal in one of the South Carolina prisons. Now, when I think about prison food, I, I sort of immediately have two images in my head. One is the old um, notion of, 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 like, the, the, the maggot-infested cornmeal. You know, the, these 
these images from the 1930s, all these movies about prisons in the 1930s in Louisiana and places, just awful, terrible, you know, eating gruel and, and barely getting by. And then there's sort of this other image of, well, you get a, you know, caught in three squares a day and, you know, three, oh, hats, in three, three hots in the cut. Uh, you know, and, and I think there is, you know, a common notion that, you know, we're coddling prisoners with their, their cafeterias and things. I have no idea what the reality is. So what did you find? I'm assuming somewhere in the middle, but where in the middle? Right. So you're right to say there actually, there was a time when prisoners may have been eating better on the inside than on the outside. This was some time ago. Um, And I'm sure you've come across um, in old newspapers, say from the 19th century on Thanksgiving or Christmas, how they would have been brought in turkeys and geese and all this. And actually there's there's a long tradition of barbecue cooking sheriffs in the South, particularly in Georgia, and they would regularly once a year cook a, a pig and have a barbecue for the inmates at, at the like Georgia prisons and things like that. Right. So I, I, you know, I, I am not an expert in the in the uh, prison industrial complex, <laughs> but I will say that things have changed pretty, pretty drastically um, since the populations of prisons have changed in the last, say, 20, 30 yep. years, ever since the 1980s. And one thing that has changed outside the prison mm-hmm. is that the quality of American food and the availability of American food in general has we may I think of it, but it's really gone up. You Absolutely. don't have people who are literally starving because they don't have a yeah, you know, they can't get enough to eat outside. You have opposite problems of people who are obese because calories are cheap these days. Right. And, and you know, nutritious food may be expensive, but there's people are rarely starving on right. the outside today. On the inside, uh, South Carolina is not too far out of line with other states in terms of uh, per inmate spending. So far as we know, there's really, it's an underreported topic. And I've I've talked to numerous uh, prisoner advocate organizations, and a lot of these numbers have not been updated in some time. And that includes by the federal government in terms of who, you know, who's, who's doing the feeding, what are they getting fed, and how much are they spending on it? But authorities seem to agree that across the country, the most is going to be spent per day per prisoner is about $1.50 to $3. South Carolina is toward the bottom end of that, and they're proud of that. Um, One of the ways South Carolina keeps its prices down is it has its own herd of chickens. It provides all its own eggs. Really? Yep. I did not know that. It does. Yep. They do all their own eggs. They do milk. Uh, We have still a working farm that supplies our prisons. And in fact, they would like to supply more to themselves for price reasons primarily. But the kitchens are not, are they're not big enough? Because as we know, there's a huge prison overcrowding problem Um, that extends to what's happening in their kitchens. They don't have coolers. So they would love to get a collards program. Um, I was about to say off the ground, but you get it. Uh, (laughs) Out of the ground. ground. They'd love to be doing collards. They'd love to be doing produce. There's no where to store produce in our in our prison kitchens right now. We don't have the cooler capacity. And that plays into an important part of prison prison diets, I think most people are aware of, which is that they don't get fruits and vegetables um, because it is too easy to turn that stuff into um, liquor. And so anything, this is a really good illustration of how things have changed over the last 30 years. In the 1980s in South Carolina prisons, you could at the canteen purchase a five pound sack of sugar, which is, that's shocking now because now they're not even allowed to have an apple because they could get drunk on it. Interestingly, the um, women's prisons are a little bit more flexible on this score. Women, according to the corrections officers, do not turn fruit and vegetables into liquor. So they are allowed to drink V8. And this is all really important because this has to do, you know, with bodily health. It seems like, yeah, nutrition, we overplay the importance of vitamins in general in the diet, but we do know that 
you know, no vitamins, no fruit and vegetables is not good for you in the long term. No. And so, and we're talking about things even beyond vitamins and minerals and things. We're talking too about calories. I mm -hmm. mean, they are just on the edge on their menus. Um, the day that I ate in prison, we ate, I guess a chef would call it a deconstructed bologna sandwich. So we had a slice of white bread. Um, we had a, a, a slice of bologna that was about 35% gray, uh, kind of streaked down the middle. They have what they call a re-rack system. So anything that doesn't get eaten can be returned and served again over the course of a week. And that went to, I would suspect, for the macaroni salad, um, which was pretty sour. Uh, so <laughs> and that, And then there was just a little bit of iceberg lettuce. Now, Again, because of security concerns, because they want to cut down on things coming in and out, because they want to not give people the opportunity to make liquor, because you know, because they want to save money, nothing's ever seasoned. They can't have salad dressing. Um, there's no salt and pepper for the macaroni salad. There is nothing to cover up that streak of gray in your bologna. And so they said, so we're talking about grown men, and that's one of three meals a day. It's not a whole lot of calories. And they have now in South Carolina prisons cut down meal service on the weekends from three meals a day to two. They call it charmingly brunch. And it's that way. The idea is it cuts down on, on work time. They don't have to use as much security because it's always a security concern to move men through prison. If there's going to be a brawl, if there's going to be a riot, it, it typically starts in, in mess. So they have brunch, but it also means they're not, they claim, the prisoners tell me they're not getting as much food. Again, to clarify, South Carolina Department of Corrections says they stick to a standard menu. I was provided with that menu. My bologna tray did not stick to that menu. So I only have anecdotal evidence of what happened the day that I lunched in prison, but it does seem like they are really cutting it close on calories. So who's actually preparing and serving the food within all prisoners, prison. all prisoners working there's in the there's a, uh, a civilian who oversees it there's a manager um but you know when you go through the line as i did to get my tray uh and i i will say the the department corrections was not incredibly enthusiastic for me mm -hmm. to have this meal there they yeah i can imagine that yeah, wasn't it, something they first they took me to the cafeteria for, i've not got any press releases for, or PR <laughs> pitches inviting me to come visit no first they took me to the cafeteria for their staff i said well that's not really what i had in yeah. mind and they took me into the prison the cafeteria for their security nah, that's not really what i had in mind so on the third try i got to go through the line um and as i said all the servers are inmates and mm -hmm. They just looked at me. <laughs> Are you sure you want this? I mean, they could not understand why I was eating. And I will say, I went through with the the, the Department of Corrections officials, and I was the only one of them who took a tray. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Were, they weren't. They, 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 they weren't interested. Well, just, in me. and even the lack of seasoning just sounds terrible. It, that, that just it, it becomes just a bland. Right. Progression of, of food. So here's what I, I don't want to say uncovered, but was new to me, which I found really fascinating, is that there are a good number of prisoners who just essentially opt out of this entire system mm -hmm. and buy food from the canteen. And it mirrors almost exactly what happens, I think, in high school cafeterias. Yeah, I can detest that definitely is happening all over high schools. It's, it's the exact same thing. And so it's, it's created kind of a, a, an additional class system because they are allowed to keep in their personal accounts up to something like it's over $100 a week. And so they can live on potato chips and honey buns. And many of them do. 
Yeah, it actually sounds pretty much like a, a high school kid. <laughs> my my teenage son and his friends are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, it, now, the canteens, are these all run by the, the, the prison as well, or is this where you start getting into outside contractors? Because that's something that happens with uh, Yeah, schools. outside contractors. So the money comes back into the prison system. Um, but yeah, all of that kind of is handled in terms of inventory. Um, there There is a company that does that, just like at schools. And so to me, it's really interesting that there are people, so although the the food they're being served is inadequate and unhealthful, um, that prisoners are just not participating. And they're creating these diets, which are, you know, I mean, it's tough. Listen, if I was wrongfully in prison, let, let, I mean, we can talk about that person. I mean, I, I, you know, someone in there is probably yep. innocent, right? So if you're the innocent man, and the only thing that brings you joy is the Cheetos that you oh, buy. Oh, I've been the, the Cheetos canteen. too, boy, especially sour I macaroni have, salad and unsalted uh, bologna. every ounce of sympathy for that guy. And I, I would never want to deny someone Cheetos. But the reality is that's all they're eating for yep. years. And this is really, really tough. There's a study. I spoke to a, um, a nutritionist at Coastal Carolina who did a very limited study of nutrition in South Carolina prisons. And was saying that there are studies that show that if you spend a week on a cruise ship, which is another enclosed uh, environment, <laughs> uh, and it's also one in which, you know, you're, you, the, the menu is set by someone other than you. If you spend a week on a, a cruise ship, it literally takes months for your body to recover um, from all of the horrible stuff you've put in it. And, and, and by that, I don't mean gray bologna. I mean, you know, fat yeah, and sugars just- and all this. So it's really, I mean, you talk about setting up um, for reentry in terms of success or failure, years and years of eating nothing but junk food is not advisable, no, at least and, according to and, this nutritionist. And I think this also gets into the, I don't want to get into correctional theory, but between, you know, should, the, should prisons be punitive or rehabilitative? And certainly the more we know about nutrition, the more we realize that, you know, nutrition and your mind and behavior, they're all linked. And it sounds like you're just you're just setting people up for when they get released, you know, to be, you know, not able to go back and join the productive society. You're, you're setting them up to, to you know, to for a, a long. So it's like it's, it seems like a, a punishment much more than it is, you know, we're going to try to, you know. Right. Rehabilitate you and get back out in the world where you can make something of yourself. I do want to say they are very careful. I I I would imagine this holds true in prisons all across the country to not have a a literally punitive aspect of food. They don't ever deny you a mealtime, for instance, although maybe they wish they would. Um, There's not actually a punitive aspect to it. Um, And and they also are every facility is inspected by the South Carolina uh, Department of Health. Um, just like any other restaurant. So I will say that currently in South Carolina, they've all passed. Um, They have had, according to their most recent health inspections, there were maggots um, and there were, there were other vermin. Um, I mean, total side note, but one of the things I didn't know until I went to prison in in this sense, until I went to prison was um, what a problem they have with cats feral cats everywhere Everywhere. yeah and the prisoners do you know they treat them as pets it's you know we know that this is important too to have those kind of connections but i had not expected that prison grounds would just be crawling with cats um anyways that's a side note so that aside um these places are checking out they're not they are not you know the food is not you know all crawling with maggots or anything these places are doing what they need to do but whether they need to do more, I think, especially in this day and age when oh. so many people at some point in their life spend time in, you know, behind bars. I just think it's an interesting question. Yeah, and you mentioned macaroni salad, lettuce and, you know, and, 
and bloody, did, did you sense of what the menu might be in other days? What types of things are typically served? Sure. Yeah. I have the, the whole menu, the one, um, the one menu that does, so it's a either 20 or 30 day menu that then repeats, uh, every prison's on the same menu. So the same day I was eating bologna, they were eating bologna in all other 24 institutions across the state. Um, and that's pretty typical. You're going to get a grain, you're going to get a meat. So the, as I was starting to say, the one thing that really brings people into mess is uh, hamburger night. Mm -hmm. that, 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 those, still, those still remain popular. We do not have as much of an issue in South Carolina with that uh, neutral loaf, which got a lot of attention, kind of the not meat. Um, so, you know, the prisoners will still say exactly like in high school, you know, they like to joke about where the meat came from <laughs> and if they're eating, you know, a flamingo steak or whatever, they don't get a whole lot of steak, but yeah. you know, I think you do are like, you know, is this horse baloney or whatever? It is not. I did tour, um, back where they keep everything. Um, it, my visit was unannounced to that storehouse. So it does seem to be true meat, you know, USDA approved product. Well, they, because you start off by mentioning chicken and eggs and milk, yeah. but it sounds like those... No, that's too short a supply to actually make up a substantial right. portion of the menu. It, it, correct. It's not that you're going to, right. I don't, I don't want you to think that you're getting, you know, a, a beautiful French omelet on your plate. No, I, mean, I wouldn't I think, think that necessarily, but a big thing of scrambled eggs can't be too bad. You know? Right, 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 right. It's, it's, and it's possible. I, I think eggs do appear on the menu in some form or another, but for the most part, I think they're just, they, they are, they do get one dessert a day. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure some of the eggs end up there. Well, I know mentioned South Carolina, you know, in addition to running their own, own you know, having inmates are doing the cooking, they're running the, the, the show. So South Carolina has its own food program, but that's not the case in most other states. Uh, I would assume that's, there's a lot of these days outsourcing of that too. There is a lot of outsourcing. And just as it has in other aspects of the prison, it's led to some problems um, in terms of um, it, relationships between staff and, and inmates, both of the, you know, good and bad variety um, and a tremendous amount of cost cutting. Obviously, um, the, these companies would like to keep as much and keep and pocket as much of the money that comes their way. Um, I, I don't have the exact count on how many states outsource and how many don't, but I do get the sense from folks who are expert in this area that South Carolina is fairly unusual in not having experimented with outsourcing. Have you seen, I mean, other is the outsource food Better, worse, or the same uh, as that's the That's a states? great question. I have not crossed state lines to eat in another prison. And so, it, it, I mean, it's one of these things, it, 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 if you've ever tried to get any kind of information out of okay. prison, you know, it's not easy. So, for instance, um, I got a couple guys on the inside now who will text me pictures of their food because mm -hmm. um, they know I'm working on this story. And it, it looks horrible, to be honest. It does look worse than what I was served. And the Department of Corrections claims that these guys, so if they're, if the prison's on lockdown, they can't come to mess. They bring the food to you. It's like room service. Yep. They get right to the cell. And once the food is in their possession, which is the only place they could use a cell phone, because again, cell phones are strictly prohibited in prison. Um, the Department of Corrections guys claim that they really make it look way, way, yeah. way worse, you know. So so the point is, it, it, it's it's not an easy thing to study uh, from the outside. It, it's hard to know. Inmates that are working in the, in the kitchen, do, do they get any... Um, Pay? Well, I, well, <laughs> well, that's a good question. But what I was wondering is, is that like industry experience? Ah, great question. Yeah, thank you for asking that because, no, they don't get paid. So that's not going to help them any. Um, it is. They have just started in South Carolina, and I don't think this is the only state that's doing it. They are doing serve safe certification, which is great. When you come out, if you have that certification, that means you basically know how to keep a kitchen clean. Um, so it's not that they're, I mean, 
listen, they're not going to teach knife skills in prison. You're not going to become a, a great chef behind bars. Um, although I'm sure there's been a movie made about exactly that topic. <laughs> but uh, um, but they are coming out with Serve Safe, which could very well get them a, a dishwashing job or, uh, you know, a very low level very low level prep cook job in the right place. So so they are aware that this is possibly uh, a, a means of returning to society. Yeah, that was the other aspect. Now you said I didn't really think about it up until now, but it, it, no knives in the prison kitchen. So you can, <laughs> in addition to no coolers, you're also cooking without knives. So that's got a limit, right. I think, a lot of what you can uh, make. Are, so are there limits on like metal spoons and things like that? Because any of those things could be Turned into a, a uh, weapon. Right, right, right. So every um, every prisoner has to supply their own, which I thought was interesting. You, you keep it, you carry it with you. It's like when you're camping. Like yeah. you keep your own set. And I assume those have to be, they have to be approved at some point. I mean, being in prison means every aspect of your yeah. life has to be approved at some point. You know, I mean, you're really living at the whims of someone else. So they could take anything whenever they want. Well, it wasn't. You know, high my list of ambitions to go to prison uh, before we started the conversation, and I think that's even less, uh, <laughs> if it's possible, even less appealing now that I uh, had to think about the, the food aspect of it. And that's all for this edition of The Winnow. If you like this podcast, we invite you to listen to The Thread, a new podcast from The Post and Courier about stories that are inextricably linked. This season covers the trials of Michael Slager and Dylan Roof. Find it on postandcourier.com or iTunes. We recorded today's episode in the podcasting studios of the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. The Window is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was J.M. Ray Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat. <laughs>